Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. There's very few things that I really long for, and one of the things I long for is to be able to share God's Word with you. When you spend time in the Word and you let the Holy Spirit teach you and you go to some of the great scholars of days gone by and you put all of that together, you really sense the presence of God and the truths of God. And sometimes that's what perhaps gets me so wired that my messages go longer than maybe some of your seats are able to endure. But at the same time, I want you to know that it's really coming from the fact that God is doing a great work in my heart. And it's not where I'm just grabbing information to fling at you. The Lord, while I'm doing all the study, is changing me and growing me. So, folks, we are really growing together, hopefully, in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I get a chance to be the one to share these truths with you. And I hope that you do that with one another. For those of you who are our guests, we're kind of in a mini-series right now. And the mini-series is underneath the title of The DNA of a Healthy Church. But instead of just jumping right into five principles or what you might call purposes of a church, I think it's far more wise for us to go back to find out what in Christology and then in uh, pneumatology and then in ecclesiology, Christ, the Spirit, and the church, how does that all fit together? And I'm finding from the comments I'm receiving from, from you folks that you're finding the study very enlightening because you know the church and you've heard different churches, but you didn't know how it all got started. How did Christianity get born? How was it birthed? And for you, it's kind of like great information because it's giving you a greater underpinning of the very thing that we call the local church, which we here would call international. And I find that a lot when people are on the outside. They'll drive up and down here and they'll say, oh, that church. Those who visit us will say, this church. Those who are members of this church will say, our church or my church. But those who are growing in grace will say, this is God's church. And that's really where we're headed on this. So if you weren't able to be with us for the last couple of weeks, I want to just quickly bring you up to speed. At the same time, I encourage you to get the uh, CDs of this so that you'll have a deeper understanding uh, because I'm only going to give a little bit of the review. And then we're going to get into some fresh material today. Again, getting ready for the birth of the church. We won't talk about the church actually being born today yet. I want to lay the groundwork of how it actually began. If you recall, Jesus is the first one to speak about the church. And so what we've learned about the church is that the church will, number one, it will prevail. And the verse is found in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus says, upon this rock, referring to himself, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it, will not overpower it. When I looked at that, I noticed that the cornerstone and the foundation, the rock is Jesus Christ. He's referred to many times as the rock. He's also referred to as the chief cornerstone. He is also referred to as the foundation, as also the apostles are referred to as the foundation of the church. But at the same time, the apostles are still built upon Jesus Christ. We also see who the builder is. He says, I will build my church. Now, we can follow a lot of good ways to build a church, and there's a lot of stuff out on church growth. You can even get a degree in church growth. But in reality, the one who builds the church is the Lord. And I find from Scripture that as closely as we live our lives pleasing to the Lord, that makes us healthy. And if we're healthy, we will then grow and our church will grow. And we'll talk about that in another Sunday. And then it talks about the quality of this. This is such a well-built church. It is such a well-built uh, spiritual institution of people that no matter what is out there, even Hades cannot prevail against it or overpower it. 
Now, I will be quick to say there have been Christians and many that have been martyred, thousands. The statistics I found that there has been more Christians martyred for the faith since uh, the year 1900 than all the Christians that have died beforehand. Now, how they got those statistics, I don't know. They may be a little bit dubious. The point of the matter still is people are dying. Those of you might even be aware of churches that start up and then all of a sudden they either... I hate to use the word die, but we'll say they cease to exist or they merge with other churches. We've seen that happen. But the overall universal church, nothing and no one, no matter what force there is, the unseen force of Satan and his bastion can never destroy the church. And there is no political system, there is no military system that will extinguish the church. In fact, it's believed that when the church is under its most severest persecution is when it grows the fastest and the largest in that area. And so the church will prevail. And I love this because we've been accepted in the beloved one. So as long as Christ himself prevails and we're a part of his body, we as a church will prevail. Well, that's the beginning of the church as far as the first mention of it in the book of Matthew. But now we're getting into some territory where the actual church itself is being born. And why are we spending so many weeks on this is simply this, is that once we understand what was involved in the birthing of the church, we will see how serious, how solemn, and yet how spectacular the church is that Jesus Christ is the head of. And so I hope that that might really help you. So the second thing we learn is that this church will have power. We spent last week speaking a lot about that. Now remember, when it was writing here in Acts, when Luke was saying all this, the church wasn't born yet. It was all preparation. There was the preparation of the Lord saying, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have power. So in other words, connected to the birth of the church will be the coming of the Spirit and the power then. And it's through that power we'll be able to carry on what Jesus Christ wants us to do. Now, as a parenthesis to everything that I'm saying... The book was written by Luke underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote Luke, Luke wrote Acts. The other interesting thing is you follow Luke and Acts, you're going to follow pretty much a timeline. And he often refers to that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that it's kind of an organization of truth that's happening. It's pretty chronological, although sometimes Luke will step away from the chronology and give some theology and some thematic teaching, but it is kind of a chronology. So if you were to learn about the birth of the church and you really want to go back a little bit, you might want to start at Luke chapter 1, not Acts chapter 1, and read through Luke's and you're going to find Jesus Christ dies and he rises again, but, but at the end of Luke, he does not ascend yet up into heaven fully yet until we have more of the story in Acts chapter 1. And so now he talks about how that the church is going to have power. So I look at it this way. We have Christ, we have the foundations of the apostles, the apostles then present the word People are coming to faith in Christ. Churches are being established. And we do go through the rest of the chronology, very simplified, of course, to where we are today. So it happens with Christ, the apostles, and those gifted people. Then we see the church come into existence. And then we are where we are today. And that's somewhat of what's happening through the birth of the church in this passage. If you'll notice the second point that I gave you, the church will have power. I put down here from last week some of those power sources in the Holy Spirit and what it means when it comes from the Holy Spirit. Let me read them to you for those that are maybe listening on the radio or maybe those getting this on a CD. So the church will have power. It says the power will come to you. It says it comes from the Holy Spirit's life-giving power when you trust Christ as Savior. Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Spirit of God comes inside of us. He, first of all, indwells us. 
All right, we'll talk about that next week is when we get into the indwelling, the baptism, and the infilling of the Spirit. That will be next week, Lord willing, if I get through this today. It comes from the Holy Spirit's abiding and indwelling presence of comfort. That means that he not only comes in, not only stays with, but he never leaves. And you can read the context. It comes from the Holy Spirit's teaching and reminding ministry. So it's not just I come inside and then I abandon you. He comes inside, he abides with us, but now he does an active ministry by teaching us about what he did, who Christ is, and illuminating us on the knowledge of God. And I love this. Not only does he teach us, but for us old folks, maybe me old folks, he also reminds us. So sometimes we learn it. We can't remember, but we cry out unto the Lord. And somehow he just, that comes back to us. He reminds us of these things. And I believe the Holy Spirit cannot remind us of truth in God's word if we haven't learned it to start with. All right, and then he empowers us to witness. And I put that phrase in there. So there is this empowerment, but it's not just to make us super saints. It's to make us super saints in the sense that now we will engage the culture. We'll engage our world for the purpose of presenting Jesus Christ. That comes when we have the Holy Spirit. And then what does the Holy Spirit do outside of us? While we're busy connecting to the community for the purpose of engaging them for Christ, he's also working with the community out there by convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment that their greatest sin is unbelief. Their need for righteousness is not going to be found in themselves, but in the one who is righteous, Christ. And judgment will come because he's the righteous judge for those who do not trust Christ as Savior. So his work is on the outside uh, of us for the world, and then his work is on the inside of us. And I like the last part. It comes from the Holy Spirit's guiding into all truth, which means as you're learning the word, he's going to guide you so that not only do you have Bible doctrine, you'll also have what we call systematic theology. And the all truth is going to be the truth that's found here in Scripture. And it's a beautiful note to know that the Holy Spirit comforts and he guides us. Now, I said all that so maybe you could understand a little bit more about the power that it says in verse 8. It says, and the power will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will be there. Sometimes we think that it's this super dynamo that we have. We have this power. Obviously, it comes from the word dynamite. They didn't have dynamite in the Bible days. Later on, they invented it. When it was invented, they thought this is so powerful, so they named it after the dynamo in the Greek. So now you have dynamite out of this Holy Spirit. It's not like we're like a battery waiting to be turned on, and now we can do something. It's, there is power. There is supernatural ability, but my belief is there is an enablement, I like that word, a supernatural enablement beyond my physical ability that's given to me through these measures right here. So what gives me the power is this supernatural life-giving power, the abiding presence of Lord in my, in, in my life, the empowerment to, to learn God's word and the empowerment to be reminded of God. All of that gives me the ability now to be a stronger, growing, developing Christian in the likeness of Christ for the purpose of bringing glory to the Lord by helping unsaved people come to faith alone in Jesus Christ and then helping them to grow to become a fully obedient worshiper of God. And that's part of our theme here in our whole church setting. So all of that is the power that was promised to come. Now, with that in mind, the question is often asked, okay, why did he wait until later to present the Holy Spirit? Why didn't the Holy Spirit actually have these ministries active when Jesus was on the earth? If you will, just hold your place here in Acts and go back to the next book, book to the left. It's the Gospel of John. Um, if you will, just turn to uh, John for a moment, and maybe um, this might help you. John 16. In verse 7 it says this, But I tell you the truth, the truth, it is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, with the, to me, that phrase is so critical. 
Why didn't he do it then? Why did he send him later on? The best answer that I can come up with is part of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ, to his deeds and his work and who he is. The Spirit was not necessary at that time yet because Jesus did not fulfill all of his deeds. He had not gone to the cross. The resurrection hasn't occurred. Obviously, the ascension didn't happen, and so that was yet to happen. However, when Jesus died, rose again, now we're in Acts, so it's just before his ascension. And if you'll notice the timeline, once the Holy, once Jesus ascended up to heaven, within 10 days, the Holy Spirit came back down and continues the ministry. So it's beautiful. What Jesus began of paying the price for the sin of the world, dying and providing for them salvation in the person and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us to help us to make that truth known to the world. And to do that, he puts the Holy Spirit, I love this, not just around us, but he places himself in us. So now we have that power to continue what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the finished work, to make that known to a lost and dying world. I know that's pretty technical, but if you understand this, it'll help you understand when we start getting into the difference between the infilling, the indwelling, and the baptism of the Spirit that we'll talk about um, mostly next week. So that's what's going on at that particular point. The power comes on. Now today, some new material for you, beginning at verse 9. So let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. So it says, After he taught all of that, he had said these things. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Remember now, there's these 11 disciples that are there, maybe a few others. They're looking on. They see that Jesus Christ was received up into a cloud and taken out of sight. And as they were gazing intently, it's interesting how verse 9 says looking, verse 10 says gazing, verse 11 says looking again, but it's all coming from the same general thought. They were looking at Christ, then they were looking off, gazing off as Jesus was lifted up, received up into the clouds, and he was gone. Now, as I thought about that, I thought, how would we relate to that? You know, I don't ever see anybody fly up. I I live near um, Montalupe Bay, and Sometimes they got this new apparatus, I think it was in a James Bond movie, that you pay a certain amount of money, you strap it to you now, and it's actually a jet, you pay a lot of money for it, but actually you sit in this thing and all of a sudden it'll push you up about 50 feet, 100 feet above the, the bay over there and you see all this stuff in the water underneath and you're looking and thinking, what is that guy doing out there? Jesus didn't have a jet pack, okay? The Lord himself raised himself up as he was received into the clouds. Now the thing that is interesting is that he looked at him. But I think there's probably no group of people who could more identify with what I'm about to say than those who are of the military. And here's why. If you recall, they were around Christ. They watched him. Many of them were there when he died. They heard him speak. I mean, they could smell him. They knew how long his hair really was. I mean, they were with him. And then they watch all of this about Jesus. And he's like, wow, look at him going. And then he's gone. And they're gazing intently. And why would I say the military? I've not been in the military, and at this point in my life and career, I have not been on the uh, tarmac when the plane comes in and they prepare all the military personnel to come back to their wives. I have not been there on the dock when the ship comes in and they, they release everybody and the joy that's there. I haven't been there when the loved ones watched their military family member either board a bus or board some kind of a vehicle or board the plane or board the ship, but I can only imagine that they stayed long enough at least if it was the first time they were saying goodbye to their loved one, to watch that plane or that ship sail or fly away, just looking and looking and looking and looking and looking until the last speck goes. I've never experienced that. But in a sense, I could think that these guys really loved the Lord and they watched the Lord go and they were just looking at him. 
And I can only imagine what was going on in their mind, and I can assume what was because of how the two angels, the two men, then responded while these guys were looking up as they were leaving. And look at how these angels responded to what they saw these guys doing, looking at Jesus. Verse 11 said, they also said, two men were there, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? And by the way, men of Galilee, that would be a low area, low-income area. It was not the place where you'd find the most popular, best people. They were really hard-working, blue-collar people. They would be more farmers up in the Galilean area. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, and if you will for just a moment, would you take your pencil or pen and underline the phrase, this Jesus, which now when you hear this Jesus is going to return this way, which we're going to read in a moment, that's going to eliminate all the other Jesuses that you might see on Kalakaua that's walking around in a suit or whatever. It's going to eliminate whatever you think of who Jesus is because it's this Jesus. It's not some other person purporting to be Jesus or the Messiah or anyone else because this Jesus The real Jesus is going to have to return a certain way. And it goes back here. It says, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come, underline that, that is not a guess, might come if he comes, probably will come, hope he comes. No, he will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. So we don't know a lot about this. So one would be, all right, we know that when he comes back, it's going to be sudden. I'm not really sure if these guys knew how sudden it was, but to them at least we could... I think agree on that it was still somewhat unexpected. We knew he was going to go, but now he's leaving. Okay, so there's an, there's an expectancy issue going on. Secondly, it talks about them going up, him going up to the cloud. You will find that often when you read about Jesus Christ coming back down again, the issue of clouds is there. Now, I'm not talking about the great cloud of witnesses. It's found in um, Hebrews chapter 12, but there's a cloud. So cloud is involved in both, not the first advent, but the second one that has two parts, the rapture and then the second coming of Christ to the earth. So cloud is involved. What does let me believe that this is not so much referring to the rapture is when it says that he left, and then if you will, verse 12 for a moment, this says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So that meant that this event happened on the Mount of Olives. We do know that when Christ comes back, not at the rapture, but at the end of the tribulation, he is going to come back and he will come to the Mount of Olives, and when he does, he will split the Mount of Olives. So I think this is intending more of us to know him coming, second coming of Christ, but post-rapture period of time. Now, what is so significant about all of that? I believe one of the most significant things is, actually not one, two, and that would be that when we serve the Lord, we serve the Lord primarily to look at Christ. It is all and only for him. If you're on the rapture side and that's your belief, you think that that's what this is talking about, instead of looking for the rapture merely to take you away from all the pain and sorrow that you're going through, and so you can't wait to be raptured out of here, or you're disappointed if you're raptured out of here before you get married or have kids or whatever other reason, if it's all about the rapture and how that messes you up or it excites you because the event, it's not about the event. It's about the person of the event the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is him who comes back. You're looking at him. This same Jesus is going to come again. It's all about him. The second is this, because scripture does speak to that, and that is knowing that Christ is going to come back again. Rapture will be taken up during that period of time. We'll be judged as Christians now, as believers in Christ, for the deeds we've done, not to determine whether or not we go to heaven or to hell, but the rewards we get. When he comes back to the earth again, at the end of the tribulation, he then sets up his reign. And when he sets up his reign, there's going to be 12 thrones. 
On those 12 thrones will be 12 apostles. You need to remember this because I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But then from the apostles, we will be ruling and reigning with him and the apostles at that particular time. And he says when he comes, here it is, he will bring his reward with him, Revelation 22. Saying all of that is this. We look to the Lord coming back, and we also look to the Lord who is a rewarder of those who are seeking him. If you will, hold your place in Acts. Maybe another way to look at it is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Apart from when I was first saved, I had a, a good youth guy, and they're always reminding us to memorize Scripture, so he took me through a whole battery of salvation verses, which was so wise because it really, it really grounded me into the uh, sound teaching of salvation by faith alone, so I just memorized a lot of verses. But my first verse, apart from a salvation verse, that I memorized was 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. And if you will, look at that, because I want you to see that the Lord is motivating us. This is one of the motivators. I'm serving the Lord. No matter what I go through, Jesus is coming back again. And I wish I could give you a whole sermon on Christ coming back and how it affects the church and how it affects our motivation in so many ways. But if I could leave you with one passage, it would be this. Verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. Now let's pause for a moment. Because we have new people that are here, uh, the rest of us that might have already gained this truth, you just celebrate as they're going to hear this. How do you become a child of God? You don't become a child of God because your parents were Christians and they were children of God by faith. So they were. Now I become a child by virtue of being their offspring, whether born or, or adopted. I'm a child of God when I am personally born into God's family. I'm a child of God when I personally have God as my father. So he is not my father before I trust Christ as Savior. John says, Jesus speaking, that we have Satan as our father. You're your father, the devil, all right? Specifically to those Pharisees and Sadducees and to all those who don't believe. Once you trust Christ, you're now born, here's the phrase, again, physical birth, spiritual birth into his family. I'm a child of God, and that's why this passage is so excited. How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So that when you're living your life, a Christ-like life in the world, on your job, in your neighborhood, at the ball game, uh, Super Bowl activities that you might be going to, and you live a little bit different life. I don't mean you're looking down your nose at everybody and telling them how bad they are, but you just live a life filled with the fullness of God, which I think joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness, all the things that no matter what life shoots at you, you're able to withstand with a good spirit, and you know that you've been changed from the inside out. When they don't know that, they're not really rejecting you, remember. They're rejecting the Christ who is in you. They're rejecting the whole Christian worldview for which you stand. And so I want you to know they didn't love the world. They're not going to love you. They didn't love Christ, and they're not going to love you. But it goes a little bit further than that. Verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we will be. In other words, what we're going to look like. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's that change in our body, change in our life. We're completely exchanged, all right, as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. And it says that everyone who has this hope, this is what I wanted you to see, fixed on him. In other words, you have this hope. You are looking to that Jesus who ascended. You're looking to that Jesus who's coming back. You're looking to the Jesus who made you a child of God by faith alone. You're looking unto Christ who loves you with an unexplainable love for you. You're fixed on him. What do we do as a result? Purifies himself just as Christ or just as he is pure. So my motivation now 
is because I love him, because he's coming back for me, and all about him and what he's made me to be, I now am pu- motivated to purify myself and to live my life for him. Not, 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 not to get saved. Not, 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 not to stay saved. I'm doing it because I'm already a child of God, and so it's because I already am saved. I do that. Now, that's the motivation. Now, remember, folks, listen carefully. I hope you're catching this. From Luke to Acts, and from the beginning of Acts through the rest of Acts, you're going through what is known as a transition period. So the truths are beginning to pick up steam as we would go further into Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and all the way through to the end. So there's a transition. So there's a little bit of what we might call theological squirreliness because it's hard to put it all together. But once you understand things are transitioning from one to the other to something new, you begin to sense, oh, I do see how it all is fitly framed together. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.